Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Aquarium Co-op, the premier online destination for live aquarium plants. With a terrific selection of plants, Aquarium Co-op is sure to have exactly what you're looking for and a whole lot of plants you never knew you needed. From Bacopa, Vallisneria, Scarlet Temple, Floating Christmas Moss Balls, which if you've never seen before, please go to AquariumCoop.com and check them out. They're awesome and super fun. Aquarium Co-op has Cripwendi, Wendii, Wendedi, or however you pronounce that one, Amazon Swords, super awesome coconut bridges covered in lush Christmas moss. And again, that's another one that you should check out if you have no idea what I'm talking about. And really, there's just too many great plants to name them all. And while you're there, be sure to pick up some Easy Green all-in-one liquid fertilizer to ensure your plants are getting all the essential nutrients they need to thrive. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Thursday, April 23rd, 2020. My guest today is Jim Valenzuela. Jim is a member of the Hill Country Cichlid Club. Jim has contributed numerous written articles to Fish Tales, the article for the Federation of Texas Aquarium Societies, which are available to the public. Jim has a passion for West African cichlids and enjoys speaking about them at clubs around the country. So Jim, welcome to the podcast. Randy, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. I know we uh, scheduled this long ago, but we finally got together today. Yeah, no, it's been a it's been a year in the making, Jim, and uh, I'm 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 very happy. I wish it was under, I guess, better global circumstances, I guess. But uh, yeah, you, you, right. know, <laughs> you know, nonetheless, uh, two two fish nerds can finally come together. Um, one of which has much more knowledge, and you can share that with uh, with me, the the less knowledgeable fish nerd. So um, definitely looking forward to learning more about West African cichlids, because because to me, you know, I, you kind of know of uh, you know Pelvicromus. Um, and that's really about it. Um, but there's so much more to them and just kind of doing my research, reading some of the articles that you've done and knowing, you know, talking with Greg Steves, friend of the podcast, two time, two time guest, friend of the podcast, Greg Steves, um, that you are very, very knowledgeable on that. And you've got some great experiences with them. So very much looking forward to it, Jim. Well, thank you so much. And thank you. And hopefully I can be able to answer some of your questions intelligently. So, so first off, Jim, you are in um, you're in Louisiana, right? Yes. Yeah. So, what's in, your... uh, Lafayette, Louisiana? Lafayette, hundred miles from New Orleans. All right, we're we're gonna do uh, what what makes excellent podcast audio. I'm gonna pull this up on Google Maps just because I always I like having that uh, visual reference of where my guests are. So, um, how are things in uh, in Louisiana right now, weather wise? Is it because uh, we're April 23rd right now? We're well into spring. Actually, the weather's been really nice. We, for about the last month, we've had a couple severe storms come through already that uh, got pounded a little bit, but we're okay. We're fine. Nice. All right. So, Lafayette, yeah, there you are, Lafayette, Louisiana. You're kind of in the so- southern, um, like south central portion of Louisiana. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. I assume you have gators around you. Uh, we have tons of gators oh, around man. here. Now that I'm birding a lot, I've never seen so many gators in my life. Oh I'm my out goodness! In the woods and, oh, they're everywhere. Should we should we just <laughs> should we digress right off the bat and talk about uh, birding and Greg's uh, group birding with friends? Yes. What, so so is does it just lend itself so well to to fish people that that tend to have collectoritis? Like birding is kind of a a, um, a less intensive collectoritis kind of hobby. But, you know, actually, I have never been into birds, and I've never been into photography. And last year uh, was my first day to go out birding with Greg Steves, and it was in August, and I love this hobby. I'm just crazy about it. I go birding every day, sometimes twice a day. You, you know, I, I honestly have a very, very similar story. So my wife and I, we'd, all, we'd always – we had bird feeders um, on our back patio, and we enjoyed seeing – uh, we, we enjoyed seeing the birds and we did buy one of the, you know, Washington state handbook to your local birds. We liked yes. doing the species identification and, you know, you kind of get the three main species. We got, uh, juncos, um, nuthatches, which are probably my favorite bird. And oh, then, yeah. um, some, some finches and then a couple very, you know, depending on the season, some other, uh, transient birds that were, that are pretty cool, like grass beaks and whatnot. And, and some, oh, uh, peleated nice. woodpeckers, which I think those actually stay year round. Um, and then Greg came up right to speak at. Uh, Greater Seattle Aquarium Society, and I took them out for the day. We did hiking and we did some bird watching, and that really kind of kindled. Like, because in the beginning of the day, um, and he video recorded this for his YouTube channel, 
but I, was, I, I think I was kind of teasing him a little bit about bird watching, but then towards the end of the hike and even, you know, midway through, I was actually kind of really into it. Like, man, where are all the birds at? And unfortunately th- this hike wasn't great for, uh, for the birds, but that really sparked something, uh, in me it, because before bird watching, I always thought it was just crazy people that would drive their station wagon park at the end of a, uh, the, you know, they'd park at a, at a wetland, pull out yes, this giant yes. camera at four o'clock in the morning and put it on a tripod tripod. And that was it. Like, that's all they would do for like two exactly. shots. And it just yes. seemed like a boring activity. Um, but now it, it, it just, I don't know, like it's, th- there's something about it that I really enjoy. And I think it's kind of speaks to the personality of what inherently draws us to fish keepers and fish rooms. Um, you know, the, the whole collector itis aspect of it, the, the, you know, the viewing, the experiencing, the connection with nature, all that good stuff. And, you know, it's nice that you don't try to catch the birds and you don't have to practice husbandry, you know, you just get to view them and, and the collecting, yes. the collecting is just the photos and then you easily share those photos. You're absolutely right. And you know, I a similar experience. I happen to be living on a, a ranch right now. It's a, little over 12 acres so oh i i get to see so many birds a lot of woods in this on the property right here so um i'd go birding and i've gotten some really cool birds right off the porch there so that's been very beneficial for me nice and so and i and i think i would encourage any listener that uh, has listened to greg steves um and you know is is a birder as well i'm gonna plug greg's facebook group uh birding with friends so i'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll have a link to it in these show notes if you want to if you oh, want to cool. join the group um and actually i recently got jimmy um Jimmy from uh, Aquarium Co-op, who's just an amazing photographer, and uh, he's started doing some birding as well. And so, you know, I invited him to the group, and he's he's shared his photos. And Jimmy yes. is just an amazing, yeah. amazing photographer, amazing videographer, and he's such a wonderful guy. And so, uh, you know, having him now share into that group is pretty cool. And yeah, it's uh, it's fun. Yes, it really is. And yes, Jimmy has some outstanding pictures that he posted too. I remember. He, yeah, he, he, he's incredible. I just picked up a new camera and Jimmy is my, uh, is my guru, my, my teacher for how do I, how can I accelerate to be the best photographer I can in the, uh, <laughs> in as quickly, in as quick as, of a time as possible. And, um, I really want to focus on the photography in the fish room, uh, so I can share these pictures of the discus and these new Corydoras oh. and all these other fish that I have, uh, with, with social media, you know, inject them into YouTube videos. Uh, but also I, I was even telling him this, this morning that I want to use it to just kind of force me to spend more time in the fish room and force me to spend more time with each individual tank as I try yes. to get these shots, as I record video, you know, putting in the tank time, putting in the viewing time to actually observe behavior and, and really just appreciate and be more in tune with each one of these tanks as I'm trying to photograph it or take video of it. And you, and you know what, after you've seen so many beautiful pictures, fish pictures, it's pretty difficult to do it. I mean, it's not easy at all. And same with the bird situation. It's, it's, I find it very hard to get the right picture. I must delete tons more than um, I actually keep. It, it's one of those things that people just make, you know, the people that have put in the hours and hours and, you know, tens of thousands of camera clicks, they just, yeah. you know, they're so good at it. They make it look easy. Um, yes. And then when you actually get it in your hands, you're like, wow, I have <laughs> no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and so it's really, it's, it's given me such, uh, such a greater appreciation for what they do. Um, and if you, ha- if you haven't checked out Jimmy's, Jimmy, you yourself, if you haven't checked out Jimmy's fish f- photography and his videography <laughs> on his YouTube, he is amazing. He is absolutely amazing. Um, well, I definitely would check that out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think I've probably lost three quarters of our listeners by now with this uh, early podcast digression. <laughs> But it's a free podcast, so it's all right. Um, so, Jim, let's. Uh, so, you as a fish keeper, what's your origin story? What are your earliest memories of fish keeping? And you know, how did you just get into this hobby? Um, I, I've been doing fish now for about forty-five years. I started when I was seventeen. I worked a retail shop and got had access to uh, fish and wholesale prices and salt water. I've worked at four different retail shops, which is not a big deal to me, but my best job probably ever, even 40 years ago, was uh, working at a wholesaler in Southern California. I absolutely loved it there. Uh, when I found out that I could go apply, I went over there one one Friday, I remember it like it was yesterday, and no one answered the door, and pretty soon this tall man came out, and, and I was nervous thinking I was going to have to do a 
an interview and I did feel like I knew a lot about fish or a good amount. Um, the guy looked at me and I said, sir, I'd like to work here. And he said, uh, he looked at me and just said, you can start Monday, 8.30. And that's how I got into it. And uh, It's probably my best job ever, Randy. It was, uh, we were getting fish from all over the world at that time. And uh, we were shipping out and we delivered to retail stores about 25 per day, five days a week. And we shipped overseas as well. And we, uh, we shipped a lot of fish, rare fish to Japan. And, um, SeaWorld in San Diego bought a lot of the rarer stuff from us. Oh, wow. Um, it was really unique, really a unique um, place to work. And um, they put me on the packing table for a while. And um, I certainly had an education very, very quick. And I realized how little I did know about fish at that point. Um, it's it just really an amazing place to work. What, what would you say, so your, your interest in the hobby, so when you first got into it, were you, were you drawn towards like the, the freshwater side, the saltwater side? Were you drawn to more tropical fish or were you inherently drawn to, to cichlids of some sort? I was really into the saltwater. And at that time in the late 70s, uh, you know, I lost more than I actually kept, unfortunately. And then I went into uh, freshwater and I mostly just kept South American um, bigger fish, arowanas, pacus, that type of stuff, silver dollars, and occasional oddball fish from Africa. And had many tanks at that point as a kid. And, um, and I stayed in that type of a hobby for 25, 30 years. I never was uh, involved with any uh, aquarium clubs at that point. Um, I kept fish and they lasted a long time and if they died, I bought more fish. And it wasn't until I went to my first fish auction in Houston, Texas, that's when I got hooked up with clubs and um, auctions. And I just really fell in love with uh, the actual buying, bidding on fish and meeting new people. Uh, then I went to the hill country and certainly Greg Steves and Schumacher were there, Dave Schumacher, and learned a lot from them and was able to get a lot of fish I'd never even heard about. And they were uh, very uh, helpful in, in um, letting me uh, get new fish. And um, so that's pretty much how I got into clubs at that point. Nice. So uh, regarding your so your time kind of as a, as a solo hobbyist, right, before you made it into the club scene, um, were you were you attempting any breeding projects at all? Or was it just purely you like these you like these South American fish, you just had a bunch of tanks and it was you would just get a fish and just kind of let it live its life and you would enjoy uh, you would just enjoy those fish and not necessarily try and uh, do any breeding or anything extra on top of just being kind of a, a general aquarist. That's exactly what I did. And I feel sometimes I wasted a lot of time because I was just set in my own little box there, kept the same fish and they lasted a long time. Many of them did. And um, like I said, it wasn't until I got into the, uh, the clubs and being introduced to so many more cichlids and um, Africans. And uh, when I was working wholesale, I really didn't care for the Africans at that time. There were just so many of them. And, the names are hard to pronounce. And <laughs> <laughs> so, it it uh, seems but, like a never-ending stream of African cichlids that are all super colorful, and they either have, you know, they're, they're obviously like a scientific name is going to be crazy in and of itself, but then there's always like a, a, a splashy common name on there, and uh, I, I kind of can get lost a bit in the uh, African cichlids, especially, the, you know, the Rift Lake ones. This is weird to say, though, but in the late 70s, the African cichlids were coming in so fast we didn't know the names with him at the wholesale place. Uh, the owner's name was, uh, his last name was Stiebel. And there was so many haplochromos Stiebeli that we put out. We didn't know names. We just put them out, you know. It, it's sad to say that, but uh, we just didn't have the um, information like we do nowadays. Mm -hmm. well, so what was your, you know, you're starting at 17. What was your multiple tank progression? And, and how did your how did your parents take all that, right? As you start amassing this, you know, collection of tanks and, and fairly large tanks by the sound of it. My, my parents were fantastic. Uh, 
I, I used to have a hobby of going to different fish stores, especially in Southern California, and there's a ton of them out there. And I remember mom and dad would drive me and or go with me, and we hit many fish stores each day. And uh, my room was, uh, I ended up taking out my bed, and it was wall-to-wall aquariums. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. So what were you what were you sleeping on? Did you just sleep on the floor? On the floor, oh. on the floor yeah. And then I slowly started bringing bigger tanks in their living room and family room. And th- they encouraged me. They really did. Um, I, I look back at that and um, they put up with a lot. And um, Or I would buy tanks and set them up and I'd find someone that would buy the whole setup from me. And um, they were always disappointed to see the the tanks lead to and then i get new ones and it was back and forth that is amazing i think your your parents need to win like the the parental uh you know nurturing aquarist award of the year or something like that for for just you know supporting you and encouraging you and then the fact to hear that they would be disappointed when you would sell one of the setups um <laughs> to somebody well you know too i had I went to a wholesaler out in Southern California. I can't remember the name of it. It's probably gone by now. But they had little red belly piranhas. And the red belly piranhas were illegal in California. And I had about 25 of them. And I raised them up to about seven or eight inches. And um, that was sort of a cool tank. I enjoyed that. Um, Piranhas by themselves are no fun. But when you get a bunch of them, they're sort of uh, cool. Mm, Nice. So... uh... So then, all right. So we'll, we'll we'll follow your progression. Was there ever a point when you when you didn't have any tanks? Like you had to, you, you know, you moved. You had to break everything down, and you you took a bit of a hiatus from the hobby. No, I've always had tanks. Um, I moved to Louisiana about twenty five years ago, and I bought a fish in Phoenix because I was living in Phoenix uh, um, for a while, and um, I just got rid of that fish, and it was twenty five years. Um, I'd had that fish. It was a Cynodonus angelicus. Wow. Um, but pretty much kept the same fish all the time. And I went in the discus a little bit for a while. And like I said, um, arowanas and approach lotus and oscars and pakus, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I know I kind of prefaced this, uh, the, the intro that you, you know, you have this, this big passion for West African cichlids, um, is, is that currently what your fish room like right now is predominantly dominated with or does that only represent like a small portion of it but you just happen to you know really get into those well due to unforeseen circumstance i had to get rid of the fish and um i do as of last week i picked up some stomatapia pindu uh, and i have those outside right now but uh all the other fish have been gone, and I was able to give them to different breeders in, in this area. And hopefully, they'll keep them going until I'm able to set up another fish room. Oh, that's good. And and then, so let's talk about, I think, one fascinating thing from this article, and before we get into the actual West African cichlids, um, you know, this this idea that you have, or, or the fact that you did have uh, an indoor fish room for the wintertime, <clears throat> and then a fairly extended outdoor fish room season so when did you when did you first start toying around with having tanks outside uh the the louisiana weather is perfect and i prefer to be outside so what i would do is i'd in the patio i set up tanks out there i had about 30 tanks out there um they didn't have gravel and they just i used uh sponge filters and i would do massive water changes massive i mean all the way down the bottoms um every day every other day and then I fill up water, replace the water. I had a pond there, about a thousand gallon koi pond. So it was ideal situation for me. I fed heavy and um, they bred and um, I, I just enjoyed it outside. It was just perfect uh, spot for me to keep the fish. So did you have like a friend encourage you to, to put a tank outside or you just, you just figured, hey, the weather is great out here. Like why not start throwing some tanks out here? I, I did. I just decided to put some out there, and a friend of mine came by and said, Jimmy, because there was a couple babies in the pond, and he said, Jim, you ever thought about breeding Africans? I said, oh, no, I don't think so. I never thought about keep uh, breeding any fish. Well, as soon as he said that, I started looking into it and learning a little bit more, and pretty soon I was stripping and um, getting a lot of fish from the auctions and raising them up and breeding them and 
bringing the fry back to the auction. So it, it didn't take long before I had tons of fry outside. Mm. Yeah, one of the things, I lived in uh, San Diego for about three years from 2000, well, when was I there, 2010, 2011 to about 2014, and that was when I had left Sacramento. So I was in the hobby when I lived in Sacramento. Uh, we moved, completely got rid of all the tanks. And for about a year, we lived in a place that had a nice backyard, had this big, really old established avocado tree. So we were getting free avocados. That was fantastic. And I yes. really and I, and I really regret not taking advantage of that year that we were in that rental house uh, with oh, a porch, yeah. with a backyard to set up some, uh, some outside year-round tanks because San Diego would have just been so perfect for it. Perfect, um, yeah. Yeah, so that's, you know, if I ever move back there, that's definitely something. Or anywhere that has a, a climate that has an extended kind of warmish season, um, I definitely want to want to do that. Because I've seen some videos now of these guys with outdoor fish rooms like yourself with, you know, uh, normal rectangular aquariums on racks outside. And it just looks so amazing. It looks so awesome. You, you know, I um, here in Louisiana, I usually put the fish out around uh, the 15th of April. And then they stay out till about ooh, 15th or the end of October. So we have a good season to keep the fish outdoors. What's your um, what's your high lows that you look for? So typically if it's going to be in, in sometime in April, but what's like the what's the, the high or the low temperature where you're like, okay, yeah, I can start moving them out? The, the mornings are a little bit cool, probably in the 40s. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then um, actually for the West Africans, they did very well outside. And I mean temperatures with the um, pungu. Um, they were hitting 86, 88 degrees, the tanks, and, um, they just bred like hell. Wow. And I'm, and I'm sure just the, you know, being, whether they're, you know, getting, getting some form of natural sunlight, their colors are probably just amazing. Yes, it, they, they really were. That was just an awesome fish that I had. I was so lucky to be able to breed that. And so let's see here. Is that the? Uh, let's go ahead and jump into then your your article. So yeah, Punga Punga McLaren and I. So uh, the Fotis Fishtails, uh, Volume Eight, Issue One. So this is when was this published? Um, dun dun dun. July July 2018 somewhere around there so mid, yeah middle middle of 2018 is when this particular article came out I'll have a link to it in the show notes um, and I mean this this particular art uh, you know available online publication from from Fotis is is just chock full every every edition of this is um, you know so many great lengthy articles you know color photos all that good stuff so Greg and, and the rest of you guys at Fotis are doing a fantastic job. Um, but you know, so it's been a couple years now since you wrote this article. Um, I guess let's start with, um, I don't know. I'll, I'll just let you take it. I'll, I'll let you take over. I don't know if we want to start with kind of what you understand of Lake Baromba Mumba or just let you roll with it. Let, let me, um, start off. We were at the hill country and they were going to start, they were going to do a swap meet out there. That's where people buy tables and then they sell their fish and whatever. And, um, I went out there and there was a retailer from Houston who was there and he brought um, eight fish. And the fish were the Pungu Makarani and the Mayaka Mayaka. I didn't know what they were. I had Greg Steves, I had Charles Jones, and I had um, Dave Schumacher come up to me and I had a table set up. I had used to sell a lot of driftwood. And they said, Jim, you ought to think about getting these fish. They're very seldom offered for sale, and they're quite rare. And I said, really? So I looked at the bags. Um, the guy wanted $25 each for them. They were about a uh, three or four inch fish. That was more than I wanted to pay for fish. That's a pricey fish. I, yeah. So what happened was he wanted the retailer wanted my um, driftwood, and I wanted his fish. So I guess we didn't really exchange any money. It worked out perfectly for me. I got the fish and drove the 500 miles home and uh, making sure that stopping all the time, checking on them. And I had them put them in a 75 gallon uh, tank in the house. I knew nothing about these fish. I checked on internet. There's very seldom anything about it, um, very, that I could find anyway. I end up um, finding that uh, Dr. Paul LaSalle had written an article about 20 years prior and um, another hobby of mine was collecting aquatic literature. And I literally had two, three, four thousand pieces of books and magazines. Uh, I, I knew I had the magazine that it was in. I just had to find it in all the boxes. So 
once I found the article, I read it. I read it. I read it. And I just thoroughly enjoyed it. And it seems like uh, Dr. Paul was more, uh, uh, he said the temperature had to be very high to keep these things. And um, so nothing more. I put the fish outside and nothing happened that first year. The following year when I um, put them outside again, uh, I was cleaning the tanks and draining all the the water and doing the water changes. And I found that my yakmayak and the pungu, when I'm draining the tanks and cleaning the sides, they really freak out. So what I would do is I put the four pungu in a five gallon bucket and the four mayakamayak in a five gallon bucket, clean the tank out really good and then refilled it and I would re return the fish back to the tank. When I went to the five gallon bucket, I noticed there was fry in the pungu bucket. Ah, I immediately took the adults out. I text Greg Steves and told him about it. He said, Jim, that's pretty cool. Those things very seldom breed. Um, they were fairly well developed and I got 26 fry out of it. And it was on the 25th of August. And uh, I was just so happy about it. I end up keeping them for maybe about a month or two and uh, Hill Country had a rare fish auction. So I decided I was gonna take these fish, take six of them over there and donate them to the club, see what what would happen. Uh, the auction started and I think I heard someone bid on $20 and somebody went up to $30. And these fish were only maybe half inch. They weren't very, very big at all. Then all of a sudden I heard someone say $100 and I thought, wow. Someone got them. I guess they really wanted them bad. But a long story short was um, I end up losing most of the pungu and the adult breeders through my negligence on feeding. Uh, they all came down with bloat. And, uh, I had seven left and talk about, oh, I was so upset. Oh, I was so upset. And and so just to, to just to un unpack the uh, how you lost them on the bloat, we're thinking that what too high of protein of a diet. That's exactly what happened. Okay. That's exactly. I called Dave Schumacher, and he said the same thing. He said, "Jim, we got to get more of a, a vegetable-based diet." So I got some flake food from him. Um, and then what I did is um, I ended up breeding more fish out of those seven. They they grew up, they bred for me, and uh, I end up getting over 200 fry from those seven fish and the fry have been all distributed to um, eight different states of the country right now from california to new york and that was uh i was so happy to send my fry all around the country thanks to dave schumacher for helping me with the shipping part of it that's awesome what do you uh, what do you what do you think the trigger was to to trigger the breeding? You know, because if Greg is saying that these are you know typically not bred in captivity very much, and um, you know you're just kind of going about your your normal, it sounded like your normal husbandry practices for any of the fish that you would keep outside, and just during the course of one of your water changes, it's oh man, twenty five fry, like ooh, sweet. What what do you think it was that triggered it? Randy, I really think it was the high temperature. Mm. Uh, I I really think also. Uh, Lots of uh, water changes. I had a lot of driftwood in the tanks, and I think they they would bite the driftwood. I would always find pieces, you know. Um, they have a really uh, hard, strong jaw. I really think that's what did it. It took me months before I could even tell the male and females apart. They looked identical. Uh, the other thing is both males and females hold, so that was even more difficult. Really? Yeah, that's so, cool. Yeah, really, it took, uh, I don't know, um, just a long time to figure out. Uh, I can tell males and females now, but it was very, very difficult in the beginning. And, and um, What are the physical characteristics that, for you that, uh, that distinguish a male from a female in this, in this Punga McLaren eye? My opinion is the, the males are more bulkier. They had darker heads. Mm. Um, that was it, mainly those uh, two areas. The females are a lot smaller. Um, I had a female that actually, I didn't know it was a female at the time, uh, the fish I found on the dining room floor. And um, 
got it into the tank right away, and uh, it, as a result, it lost an eye. And that female produced for me a lot of fry. It was a smaller fish, and it just always was holding. So, um, and then I find that I would, you got to catch these fish at nighttime because they, they spook too easy. If you catch them during the daytime, the lights are on in the aquarium, they'll spit in the net, and it's just a big mess. Mm. Do it at nighttime, and believe it or not, I would use a little blue light in the tank. I would wear a black T-shirt, and there I am catching the female. And um, I find, for me, it worked better to strip at 13 days. If I do 10 days, they weren't developed enough. Uh, for me, anyway, and if I waited too long, I was afraid that they were going to spit in the tank. So, is, thirteen days was the critical time for me. Jim, I'm not uh, I'm not well versed in um, you know mouth brooders or, or you know mouth brooding cichlids and whatnot, and kind of the the breeding uh, repertoire, I guess, for that. Is is ten days kind of a standard? Like, oh, if you've got a mouth brooding fish, you you typically strip it ten days, or is this just from your own experimentation? <laughs> Well, what I believe I, I recall is they recommend around 20 days, 21 days. Um, and then you have some hobbyists, and I know that's a controversy, but um, where they actually catch the fish and, and, and strip them. Right. Um, I just prefer that way because I wanted to get a lot of fry. I just, mm. everyone really counted. In fact, um, I would call Greg up and I say, I got five fries. Um, and he would go, Everyone, it counts. Everyone counts. Um, <laughs> yeah, then, yeah. I think the most I think I had was like twenty-eight or something like that. It was a it was a big brood. Nice. So let's tie this into the uh, the, the cares aspect of it and, and why everyone counts. So Lake Barombi Mumba Mumba Mumbo 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 Mumbo. Okay. Wow. I was. Trying a little too hard on that one. Uh, so wh- wh- what do you know about that lake? I've, I've got, again, my, my favorite activity during a, a podcast is to have it up on Google Maps. Uh, this thing is, uh, you know, uh, in Cameroon, north of the equator, and it's a relatively small lake, you know, smaller than I would have thought. So I will, uh, I'll stop talking and let you talk. I'll give you a little bit of information I might, I do have. It's a very small lake. I think about a half, uh, an acre. Um, you can actually sit, uh, stand on the shore and you can look around the entire lake. It's fairly deep, uh, maybe 300 feet, if I recall, but only down to about 150 holds life, if, if I recall, um, due to the oxygen level. There's, uh, I believe, 11 species of cichlids that come from that lake that are only found in that lake. I was fortunate enough to get four of them. and. Um, I bred the Stomatopia pindu, and I had the uh, mongo, Stomatopia mongo as well. I didn't get a chance to breed them until uh, you know I end up selling them to another hobbyist due to my circumstance. But um, I, I fell in love with this lake. I really did. Uh, I don't think they're exporting anything out of that lake at this point. Uh, and like every other, most areas in the world, deforestation and pollution and everything else has um, been very hard on this on these species yeah just just from what I can tell from from the Google Maps pr- uh, perspective I mean it, it is a very circular lake um, which you know it almost looks like a uh, like a caldera like a, a volcano um, yeah, like a, lake, yeah yeah it looks like a crater is it a crater lake it is a crater. Oh, lake. Okay. <laughs> well, there you go. My uh, my <laughs> geology 101 is uh, is paying off. Randy, the uh, the was a volcanologist. <laughs> so it's yeah, a, so it's a, right. Awesome. So it's a crater lake. Um, it's right outside the the city of Kumba, and it looks from what I can tell about is it like a mile wide at most, maybe less than a mile wide. Maybe, so, maybe yeah. a half mile wide yeah so it's not, like you say it's not it's not a very big lake um and it's it's surrounded by forest so this this I'm, I'm assuming extinct volcano um you know it's got all this green lush around it with with some civilization encroaching on from the uh, from the southeast uh but yeah it, it it just doesn't look like you know i mean when you think of africa and of course you think of the the rift lakes um you know these just massive massive bodies of water um and then it's oh here's here's little lake barombi with these 13 or 14 endemic species of uh of cichlids that's really really cool yeah it really is and um when i get more tanks again i'm going to uh spend a lot more of my effort and time 
getting more of these cichlids. I just fell in love with the area. And it's just so cool because they're unique um, and they're found nowhere else on earth yes is there any um is there so so primarily deforestation so with deforestation you get that silt runoff into into the water um is there is there overfishing is there introduced invasive species like now tilapia into this to support a um, an actual food fishery are there any of those pressures as well i i think that's correct um all was, all of the above <laughs> yes <laughs> i think there was some introduced um species that put in that lake as well and um, and because it's relatively small, it's just, uh, you know, it's just very hard to, uh, to uh, there's not very many of them there. Mm -hmm. Do you have any uh, bucket list, you know, kind of intentions to, to put a trip out to Cameroon and to actually go in person to, to Lake Barombi? Is that, is that an all a desire of yours? I actually thought about it at one point. Um, probably not now. Uh, I, I think it's just, but it would be a dream, though. It might, might be a dream just to go there sometime. And um, I certainly look at some people that have an opportunity to do it. And I see their videos on YouTube, and it's just amazing to see these fish. And 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 I think of oh, there's a pungu right there, and uh, just uh, they really, out of all the fish I kept, I again I want to say the West Africans are. I fell in love with this. Uh, these species mm -hmm. uh, so to, to, to kind of go back from your like geographic moving uh in the united states so, so southern california um arizona and then louisiana did you did you struggle at all with uh, like water quality water parameters and kind of what you kept because from from my understanding southern california uh i want to say that's a fairly that's a fairly high ph in, in in like high tds water right coming from what the colorado river or mona lake yeah. sometimes or wherever wherever los angeles pulls their water from you know randy i really didn't pay that much attention to the ph i probably should have um in louisiana where i was living in my house um to me the, the critical thing was just doing the major water changes um and keeping that temperature up. And even when I brought the fish in for the winter, um, I didn't use heaters in the tanks in the house, except for the um, um, Bromby Bowl cichlids. And I would crank that up, like I said, at 86, 88. Mm -hmm. So you're not, you're not chasing any water parameters as far as really, in, in your whole time as an aquarist or trying to match what the riverine or, or lake-based uh, West African cichlids come from? No, no, I really don't. And, I can, you know I can, I, I can completely appreciate that because I am, not, I am not. <laughs> I will admit, I am not a, a parameter chaser. Um, it, it could stem from just being on the lazy side for me personally. <laughs> but yeah, you're it, talking to a guy who doesn't use gravel and just uses sponge filters, so it's <laughs> no. I mean, hey, when you've got when you've got multiple tanks, man, that's the uh, that, that's the way to go. I am. I will. I will say with the with the Corydoras tanks, tanks, I am experimenting with uh, with just kind of the first quarter portion of the tank. Having a uh, very light covering, so they can kind of get that stimulation. But that's for that particular species, you know, that that type of fish, where most right. of, uh, every other tank in the fish room is is bare bottom. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm with you on that. Yeah, I certainly do agree. Um, and the fish that I have outside right now, you you couldn't even tell they were in there. They're just in a 55 gallon, and there's boards on top of it. And, um, just an airstone right now, so I got to work on that a little bit. Nice. And so the yeah. the actual mechanics of you're pulling water from a from your thousand gallon koi pond, and is yes. that like getting pumped into a fifty five gallon barrel, and then from there that's getting pumped into the tanks? Like how, or are you just running a pump straight from the pond into these tanks? That's exactly what I do. Just oh, a wow. pump, and then I would refill the tanks, and then I top off the pond. And, and again, I had unlimited water. Um, I never used chemicals at all uh, in the summertime just because of the situation I was in. But um, like I said, I would do massive water changes just daily. Hmm. Oh, very cool. And uh, yeah, I'm trying to see here. Yeah, Cameroon, kind of north of the equator. Looks, uh, yeah, that whole area. Like, I really want to go. And uh, I, I think on my kind of collecting. Um, bucket list activities is go go to west africa not so much for the cichlids but i really want to go and do some killifish chasing i think that would be oh yeah i think that would be pretty cool to do um what other kinds of fish do you have in your did you have in your fish room at, at, at kind of its height more recently 
Um, it, it was mainly, uh, I, I guess you can call them the bread and butter African cichlids is what I kept and, and raised them. And, um, and those all went to auctions and did that for quite a number of years. Um, but I would say really most of the fish I did keep, I know this is different than what I just said right now, they were mostly Karen's fish, a lot of Victorians, um, and mostly Karen's species. Mm-hmm. It, were you first introduced to Karen's just when you when you joined that club scene um, in uh, joining like the Hill Country Cichlid Club and whatnot? Exactly. Mm. Uh, between Dave and Gray, again, barely, uh, uh, they taught me a lot about the Karis fish, and, uh, and that club is definitely uh, goes in that direction, and, and certainly not any of the hybrids, and pretty much against all that kind of stuff. So it was it was a perfect club for me to be in. Mm-hmm. Did you have any? Um, did you ever have any fish in your fish room that gave you a challenge that you just weren't able to breed? Um, I would say the Mayaka Mayaka. I never did get a chance to breed those. Another fish from the um, Brown Bebo. Never had a chance to breed those. And um, and they're a beautiful fish, too. They were, they were already up about five inches when I uh, let them go. But um, I wish I would have got to breed them. Do you have any theories as to maybe what might have happened with, with them as far as not being able to breed them? Well, I, I really don't... In, and even talking to people around the country, that's a fish that is just very, very difficult. Um, and in fact, I don't even think anyone's breeding them at all right now. Mm-hmm. So it's a very difficult fish. Yeah, and so in this, in, in your article, what I really like is that you do list the, uh, let's see here. But I was disappointed that they never did breed for me. Huh? Uh, maybe someday I'll get, I'll get some more and change that. <laughs> and how long, how long did you have them for, I Actually, a while, maybe oh, three, four years. Okay, and then uh, it's, so, like from a sexual maturity standpoint, they they should have been sexually mature by then. Yes, they they were the the males were, um, you know, they are all fired up at different times and they chase each other all the time, and um, I, I just never could get anything out of them. Huh. I really interesting. Yeah, disappointing a little bit. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm sure you've got enough uh, successes in your in your uh, fish room that you know it's not doesn't weigh you down too much. But it's uh, it, it's like that unicorn, right? It's the it's the yes. one that, it's the one that got away, and the one that you know you're gonna uh, when you get your fish room you know back to where you want it to be, then you know that'll be one that you can go after again. Yes, um, in fact, you brought up a, a, a bad memory right now. Oh, I forgot about it, and now it's bugging me. <laughs> I need to get some more of them. But, but it's one of those fish that is. It's almost impossible to get. They're just not available. That's why I was so lucky to get those from that guy from Houston. And I did find out at one of the Photos meetings from that time, uh, his name is Prosper. I don't know his last name, but he has a retail store in Houston. But I said, were those wild caught? And he says, oh, most definitely. So um, that was sort of cool to be able to breed the wild caught ones. And you, and you do, you do know somebody that does have the Mayaka Mayaka, right? And they were were they the from your population? No, they weren't. They're from a guy has them up in um, up in New England area. Oh, okay. So a different um, source, I would imagine. That, that that's such a wild aspect of this hobby uh, that you know these these West African fish that we're talking about that are endemic to only you know they're they're endemic to a lake in in Cameroon. And we're Americans, you know, it's a Seattle guy talking to a Louisiana guy who's talking about a fish that he knows a guy in New England has. Like, it's just, it, 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 it's kind of crazy. Yeah, that, that's where that CARES program really helps out a lot. Um, and especially the internet, we share information and um, posting pictures and posting breeding and all that. That, that really helps a lot. Um, and, and that's how, once I started posting pictures, um, I had people contact me that they wanted my fry, so that was sort of cool. You know, 20 years ago that didn't happen, or 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, Greg, you know, when I originally had him on, uh, it was to talk about the CARES program. And was is it a is it a quarterly publication that CARES puts out? And at the end of it, I think it has the uh, the kind of the the CARES exchange list of what uh, various people that have CARES species they listed up. Um, yes. Okay. Is it That's qu- correct. is it monthly or quarterly? I, I think it's quarterly. Okay. Yes. 
And then another resource is always Aquabid, right? You can always, you know, do, um, you can search CARES. I've done that a couple times to see what comes up. And, you know, the onus is obviously going to be on the seller to actually include that it's a CARES species, whether they put it in the title or the description so it actually comes up. Um, it'd be kind of neat if actually Aquabid would, would have a specific, maybe just a, a drop down like in their little menu for care specific yeah. and then it would just be all encompassing regardless of the uh the type of fish that it is that would be really nice um and actually i got a lot of my care's fish from the club um that, that was so cool um to be able to get fish from the breeders and, and certainly you can get information about those fish and um that was it made my job a lot easier trying to acquire some of these rare Mm-hmm. Oh, very cool. Well, Jim, yeah. this is uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I mean, learning about these West African cichlids and especially the the Punga McLaren eye and just your experience with them, um, I've definitely appreciated it. Uh, what what do you where do you see yourself in the in the hobby in the next like five years? Well, well it's funny you say that because I had been trying to get out of the hobby for years, probably oh. about five years. And it's a big joke with all the clubs in Texas and Louisiana. They said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They even made a shirt for me. Um, I'm downsizing <laughs> the country. Um, and they had several people that were wearing the shirt with a picture of me in the front. I slowly got rid of everything, anticipating the move. And that happened. Um and I've been without fish for about six months now. It's the first time in my life, I recall, since I first started. I really would like to find a place where I'm able to set up a fish room again and focus on the Kara's fish and the um, cichlids from Brumby Bowl. Um, possibly maybe that will happen maybe within the next year. But uh, I, I didn't realize how much I would miss the fish. Um, and certainly the birding has taken... Uh, has helped me a lot but i still miss the fish though yeah no that that's interesting because again you know to bring up greg again his ears are probably burning right now but uh you know he he himself we talked about him kind of downsizing and it seemed like birding was taking um not that it was taking more time but he was finding kind of a new interest in that and you know him downsizing his fish room and, and really focusing on a few select fish you know to kind of hear that you guys are both you know going through that um you executing on that more so than he has and then to hear that you're like oh man i've been six months without him and i actually kind of miss him yeah it's sort of funny because all we do is we talk about birds we never talk about <laughs> <them>. <laughs> it's funny <laughs> do you so when you when you do start um you know uh, building up your fish room again do you think will you will you take the approach of maybe just one or two species really narrow it down only have a few tanks or do you think it would it, it would just end up being kind of mirroring what you've have, have had before in terms of the number of tanks, the number of species. Depending on the size of fish room I might uh, be able to have, um, that would determine that. But I like to focus on the Bromby Bowl sequence. Again, um, I really was happy doing that. And, and being introduced to those species, uh, it created a really huge interest for me in the fish hobby. I think I was probably getting staled after a while, you know, just same fish, 25 years. And um, it really helped me a lot. And uh, I certainly learned a lot, but uh, I think I'm going to go back in that direction and concentrate more on, on those particular species. Yeah, I mean, I guess when you think about it, it kind of makes sense that if this has been, if fish keeping has been such a, you know, a, a a long-standing part of your life, you know, 45 years total in the hobby, you know, to go even six months without it, I, I would like that, you know, that's just kind of a piece of who you are, you know, and if, I, if I'm in the same boat as you, I would have to imagine that, you know, just keeping fish, I've been doing it for so long, and even if it's just one tank, I feel like I'll always probably have to have at least one tank going, um, as, as cool as birding is, right? Like it's, you know, there's yeah. the, you, you get the photo, but then you don't necessarily get to feed the birds, you don't get to really interact with them, you don't get to, to breed and, and, and share the birds, although I'm sure some people probably do in some capacity. Maybe there's a, like Tiger King, there's a bird king out there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> that'll be that'll be the next Netflix show. I was actually wondering to completely digress on that topic, if Netflix is gonna find like some type of like fish king where there's oh, where, yeah, where there's yeah. like a personality that's equally as as interesting as Joe Exotic and Carol Baskin and that whole thing and it's <laughs> and it's all about like the tropical fish industry and it, it, it paints us in the same light as like the big cat trade or something. That would be uh that would be wild. <laughs> 
That is too cool. That's too cool. You know what, Randy? I would like to mention about me actually getting to meet uh, Dr. Uh, Paul Russell. Oh, absolutely. And I was telling him all about it. One day we were having breakfast with Greg Steves, and, and I went on and on about the Pungu, and, and he interrupted me, and he said, do you have fry? And I go, yes, sir, I certainly do. Then, oh, I, I got so much information from him at that point, you know, and um, he's been a tremendous help. In fact, I was happy enough. I was able to send him some of my fries. So um, hopefully he's doing well with them. But he, like I said, he bred them 25 years ago. And um, hopefully um, it was a big honor for me to uh, send him my fry. I was going to say that is pretty awesome to actually send Paul Lazell some fry that he actually wants. Like that's, <laughs> yes. like that's, that's, that, that's a pretty big feather in your cap. Yes. Yeah, but, um, yeah, Dr. Lazell. There were that... some other fish that he wanted from me, too, and that's what he, uh, Dave Schumacher knew I had him. And, um, so I said, well, let me send the Pungu, too. So it was it worked out good for um, all of us, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that's so crazy. Yeah, Paul, Dr. Paul Lazell, that's definitely somebody that uh, I, I, I've interacted, and I know people that, um, that, that know him uh, very well. And so, you know, hopefully someday, whether it's in person or through, um, you know, some type of a virtual manner like this i can i can have paul Lazell on the podcast and just kind of understand you know who uh you know who he is and, and just really his whole origin story because you you watch I, i've watched numerous presentations um that paul Lazell has given and i mean just the amount of fish knowledge um geopolitical knowledge for the various areas where he does his work i mean he's he's a, the guy's a walking encyclopedia and not just in fish but in so many other uh aspects Oh, he really is. Um, yeah, he goes over my head so many times in a conversation. I have to ask, what does that mean? What does that mean? You know, it's yeah. And, it's, and he has in, awesome. during his presentations, he has a very distinct kind of uh, kind of humor. And when he injects his his humor into his presentations, I really appreciate it. It's it's pretty funny. <laughs> yes. Well, well, Jim, this has been fantastic connecting with you. Uh, you know, it's been a year in the making, but I'm so glad we had this chance. And, you know, Lake, uh, we're, we're helping to, to put some spotlight on Lake Barombi Imbo. Imbo, yeah. Man, okay. Maybe if I say it 17 times in this podcast, in this interview, uh, I'll, I'll eventually have it. But I would, I would strongly encourage, you know, listeners to, uh, to just do Google Maps, check it out, um, you know, see, see everything that we were talking about. And, and if you have an interest in CARES in general, uh, West African cichlids, um, you know, and you want to take a crack at Mayaka Mayaka or any of these other species, you know, I, I, I hope that, uh, this has maybe inspired you or at least, at least given you a, a glimmer of education on, on, on the lake and the endemic species there. Well, thank you, Randy, very much for having me. And I certainly hope that, um, your listeners, um, uh, receive some information that they can use and perhaps maybe they can set up a tank and they can keep some of these awesome cichlids. <laughs>